This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You don't want me anymore. Done. Comcast no longer seeking to compete with Walt Disney for a swath of 21st Century Fox's entertainment assets. Uh, fascinating. We've been really focusing on this media trifecta for a few weeks now, but uh, it's certainly moving on. Let's get more into what happened today, what's next. Eric Gordon is with us in the house, professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan, and Nabila Ahmed, our Nabila Ahmed, media M&A reporter at Bloomberg News, both right next to me in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Nice to have you here. Bam! So much for being asleep. July, because that's not exactly what happened. <laughs> Nabila, that headline crossed him. We're like, wow, Comcast, they're done. Exactly. Look, they had another week to make that decision because the Fox shareholders don't gather until next Friday to right. vote on the Disney offer. But it was looking this way because remember the takeovers panel in the UK came out last week and said that whenever you increase your bid for Fox here, that would uh, trigger what they call the chain principle and you would have to increase your bid for Sky on the other side of the Atlantic So that made it really tough for Brian Roberts. Uh, So Brian Roberts walks away. Eric, come on in on this. Um, Tell tell me your view. I always think about when you're teaching a class and you're looking at these deals, how you present it to your students. How do you use this as kind of a learning experience? So this is a great one to think about because you can think about it in two ways. You can look at it in sort of the finance way and say Comcast was running out of steam. They didn't have enough balance sheet left. They would end up too leveraged, and they want to keep their investment-grade rating. So there's a finance way of looking at it and saying, you know, they don't want to overpay. But the other way of looking at it is if if these deals determine the future of your company, what does overpaying mean? That's what I was going to ask you. Is that short-sighted? I mean, Nabila, what are people saying? What are analysts saying? Was you know, Is Comcast making a mistake here that maybe they're going to regret in a few years from well, now? Well, if you look at their share price, the shares are up. Investors are really happy because they, don't, they really didn't want Comcast to enter this bidding Right. And the shares today are up uh, to their highest since about March. So that kind of tells you what the market thinks. And I think a lot of their investors... Up 2.7% right yeah, now as we speak. And I think a lot of their investors were also concerned about Comcast suddenly decided that it needed more content when the business has traditionally been more skewed towards cable. And they felt like that was sort of saying that maybe cable wasn't working out for them as much anymore. Interesting. All right. But now what they focus on UK Sky, right, uh, Eric? Is that a good thing for Comcast? Yeah, you know, I think it's What, actually, what do they get from that? So they get uh, something like 25 million paying subscribers. These are people who pay money. That's good. Across five countries in Europe. Comcast doesn't have as big a presence as they'd like to have in Europe. Mm-hmm. They want to uh, you know, get more use out of They own NBC News. They want to get more use out of that. Uh, Sky has a news channel. So it's, it's not a bad consolation prize if you look at it that way. Although, as Nabila said, the Comcast investors, uh, I think, are very relieved. They, they don't think of it as a consolation prize, although you know, it might be. 
What's crazy though is it's not a done deal, right, Nabila? I mean, Fox, they don't they don't have Sky yet. <laughs> they don't. They do. Comcast does have the higher bid for Sky at the moment, so they're in the lead in that race. But doesn't Disney will own a part of it as a result of the twenty first century? It will. Century so Disney Fox may purchase? decide. Listen, one of the things that some analysts have raised with me today is what if Disney decides after next week, once you know this Fox deal has been already voted on by the, by the shareholders, what if Disney decides to come in and make their own bid for all of Sky? You know, and that might be why Brian Roberts was very nice. He congratulated Disney. You know, not the kind very of thing that you use. I, I love the frenemies that are in this world today, right? Yeah, you know, you sort of wonder if it isn't, hey, I'll be nice to you. Don't make me look bad and have me go 0 for 2. Yeah, and Bob Iger said it was a very exciting day. Well, let's talk about what this does for Disney then. If they ultimately get it, what does it mean? How does it change Disney and Nabila going forward? Listen, Disney's launching their own streaming product next year. Um, we don't know the name of it. We kind of call it Disney Flicks for now. <laughs> but th- this is going to be a game changer for that product because they are meant to be doing new movies, a number of new TV series, and this is going to give them that content that they desperately need. It's going to make them, they think, better able to compete with with the Netflixes and Amazons of A streaming the competitor. Yes. I am curious too, you know, Eric, as you watch all of this and just how the media world is transforming, right? Remember when cable was so much better than network and then network kind of had, I felt like it came back. I mean, what is there a pecking order when it comes to content distribution? Do we have that yet? Yeah, you know, the pecking order seems to change. And and where one of the places you're seeing this playing out is, is another dance. Uh, Viacom and CBS, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting because they were together apart, together apart. But there were times when Viacom was hot. It had MTV. It was hot. CBS was the dog. Right. Now Viacom is sort of, if not the dog, let's say it's not hot. CBS, you know, unless Moonves is. So it keeps going around. But what's interesting when you see Netflix is you're seeing content and distribution converging. Um, and that's what a lot of this M&A play is about is, wow, we'd better be both. So in a sense, it's like back to the future uh, in, from the days, uh, this is before I was born, so I know it's before you mm-hmm. two together were born, <laughs> the days when the film studios and movie theaters right. were one company or most of the television production was done by the network. So, you know, we're sort of, we, we go into cycles where we de-aggregate, right. we aggregate, but now we're definitely in an aggregation cycle. Nabila, what does this mean for any other, like, are there any other media companies? Like you said, okay, I'm kind of bummed that this is over because this has been fun to report on and cover. Um, But are there other media companies now you start to look to? Absolutely. Well, there's obviously CBS and Viacom and what happens next. That's going to be sort of decided by a court in a couple of months. And, but then you've got Discovery. So David Mm -hmm. Zaza, the Discovery CEO, we spoke to at Sun Valley last week. And he said, you know what? This makes my company more valuable. And whoever loses it, they're going to take probably a look at us. And there's Lions the movie studio up for sale. Um, there are various assets. There's Endemol Shine, a content pr- mm-hmm. creator. So there are various assets out there that people will be jumping all over. But I do have to say, Rupert Murdoch, well played. Well played, right? Oh, my God, I love this stuff. Nabila Ahmed, thank you so much. Take a break now, but I, I'm guessing it's going to get busy again this fall. Media M&A reporter at Bloomberg News, Eric Gordon, so great to have you in studio. Professor at Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. You are listening to Bloomberg. Slip sliding away. 
Yeah, that's kind of how you describe the commodity universe, and that commodity contagion seems to be spreading. Let's get an update on all of this. Reg Gale is Deputy Managing Editor of Energy and Commodities right here at Bloomberg News. He joins me in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. I mentioned before the um, before we got into this that the commodity index is just down about 9% since late May. But we are seeing, for some commodities, specifically, Reg, uh, deeper losses. Absolutely. The metals are, are getting hit very hard right now. And, you know, we have a looming trade war. Mm-hmm. We have metal. We have the uh, price of dollars rising. And the combination there between the two is just putting a blanket over everything um, everything that's coming out of the ground. Really. Remind everybody, right, because so many commodities are priced in dollars, right? So a higher dollar makes them more expensive. Right. A higher dollar makes them more expensive because we're, they're buying them in the United States and selling them elsewhere. What's interesting, too, is I feel like whenever we look at anything, I always think, is it a supply-demand you know, story or is there something else going on? Like when it comes to commodities, we love to watch what's going on in the commodity universe, right? Because it can tell us about what's going on in terms of global growth. Um, what's the thoughts on that? Well, beyond supply and demand, which really do drive the market. There's also the question of uncertainty. And right now we're in a very uncertain world, both politically and financially, economically. And that uncertainty is also pulling people away from uh, commodities until they see what happens. And once they see what happens, they may dive back in. But for now... It's it's walking a very fine line. When you say that, is it a case of investors don't want the exposure or is it a case of people not buying those raw materials because they're afraid to kind of put themselves in overexposure? I think it's a combination of the two. Yeah. And you have to remember also that Downriver, there's also effects on this as well. You know, if you're not buying these commodities, if you're not moving metals, you're not building things down the line. Mm-hmm. So this is a uh, this has a big effect that rolls deep into the economy of, of virtually every country, and probably affects developing countries where where uh, metals come out of the ground maybe the most. Right, and you think about right all of the either equipment and stuff that goes into it or transportation in terms of moving it around. What's interesting about this story that we have on the Bloomberg also takes a look at kind of the contagion and and how, right, again, as you say, things are showing up in equity markets, which are playing up in the currency markets. Talk to us a little bit more about that. And it's showing up in companies as well. I mean, the companies that are are running the mines, the the companies that are providing the equipment, all of these companies are, are feeling the pinch right now. And you know, overall investors are, are, are worried. It's not just people that are buying and selling commodities. It's people that are supporting the companies that provide the commodities. You have obviously, no doubt, seen a bunch of cycles within the commodity complex, ups and downs and bounce backs and sell-offs and so on and so forth. Um, so much, right, we are trying to assess all of this trade talk and escalating trade uh, tensions, you know, whether or not it's turning into actions. How, though, quickly, if we see that trade talk ease, could we see the compo- commodity complex? Might you expect the commodity complex to kind of bounce back and rally back up? I think it'll step back. I don't think it'll bounce back. I think what we've seen is that people are, are worried because really the message changes every day. Mm-hmm. So that even if you get a positive message on any particular day or group of days, it'll start to step back until people are sure they have their footing. Again, that very fine line. They want they want that wide line yeah. that they're walking on broadened out so that they, they know they're going to make money. I mentioned Bloomberg Commodity Index down 
uh, more than 9% since late May. And I guess I was trying to take into account when we really feel like the trade talks started to, started to height, heighten in turn, right. you know, and, and, and impact the commodity complex. But commodities were pulling back already, correct? Yeah, a little bit because of the dollar rise at that point. And, and also it had hit a high in May. And, you know, people were starting to think, well, you know, now now yeah. there may be a little correction, but a little correction got booted into a big correction off of a high pricing because of all the uh, all the economic news and the, and the concerns. What about China and all of this? Whenever we talk about commodities, we talk about China because there's such a big drawdown, <laughs> uh, you know, on pick your commodity. What's the role of China in all of this? They're on the other side of the trade war. And people is it are, just the trade war? Is it also, though, um, slackening ch- Chinese demand? It, it, it's hard to say how much of the slack in, in China demand is because of people concerned about the trade war yeah. or because they're slowing down themselves. They don't want to slow down, clearly. I mean, right. their, their message has been growth, growth, growth. And the government's but, certainly doing things to kind of pump right. it up. Um, it's interesting, too, though, You in this story, I mean, some of the commodities and some of the raw materials, I mean, they're in bear market territory, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Like copper? Yeah, copper. Anything right. else there? Or? No, I think um, copper's the big one. Yeah, right? I think copper's the big one. It hit kind of a historic low uh, just today, so it's it's really... It, you can really feel that. Well, and I feel like this is one of those stories that you like to keep on top of because, as again, we tried to assess all of this trade talk and whether or not it's having an impact. It's certainly playing out when you look at the commodity complex. Absolutely. All right. Good to get uh, a check-in with you. Thank you. Thank you. Reg Gale, he is Deputy Managing Editor of Energy and Commodities at Bloomberg News. Reg joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. We were young and proud. We were So uh, it's an interesting time, and it doesn't feel like a day, go by, day goes by without talking about the latest on trade negotiations and trade tensions and trade wars. Uh, the Commerce Department, by the way, today holding a hearing looking into whether imports of passenger vehicles imperil U.S. national security. It's part of an investigation which, depending on the outcome, could trigger a 20 percent tariff on autos that President Trump has threatened. Let's get into this with Jonathan Smoke, chief economist at Cox Automotive, with us from Atlanta, along with our Felipe Hernandez, Latin American economist at Bloomberg Economics, and who is in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Jonathan, let me start with you. You're watching this, I'm assuming, pretty closely because it could impact the auto industry um, in a big way. Absolutely. Uh, it, uh, it has a lot of potential complications for the industry, to, to put it mildly, uh, you know, involving much higher prices, uh, reduction in sales, really hurting just about every possible participant. Uh, So it's definitely something to pay attention to. What do we know, though, about auto manufacturing? Because I hear more and more auto uh, manufacturers are manufacturing kind of in their own backyard. Some of that is happening, uh, but how much of that then is ultimately for export? I mean, what's kind of going on when we look at that big picture? Well, it's 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 amazingly the the supply chain itself yeah. has has evolved through the years based on historical and and um, new at the time uh, trade relationships. So, for example, NAFTA uh, has had a major impact in terms of the supply chain, and in fact, it's it's very difficult to actually measure a precise precise percentage of any one vehicle because so many of the components. Uh, may be sourced and part of the assembly uh, in various countries before the final assembly uh, comes together. Uh, but if we simply look at where where is the the vehicle assembled, and we look at the 17.1 million, uh, 17.1 million vehicles 
uh, sold in the last 12 months, uh, 47% of them are assembled outside of the United States. So, you know, that's nearly half of what Americans are buying uh, are actually coming from other countries. Felipe, I want to bring you into this conversation. You know, you obviously are keeping a watch on what's happening uh, in Central and, and Southern America, Mexico specifically. But, I mean, Mexico is a very open country, right, when it comes to trade, generally speaking. So um, what's the update in terms of where this might be going and the impact that this could ultimately have on Mexico? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Mexico is indeed a very open economy. Exports and imports are a significant share of their um, overall economy. And uh, just to highlight one, to say one thing before, this uh, investigation that the U.S. government is doing on imports of autos is precisely the same type of investigation that it went through before deciding on tariffs on steel and aluminum. Uh, which implies that there's a real risk for these tariffs uh, to to be implemented. We've seen this playbook before, and we know what happened. Ultimately. Exactly. And in the case of Mexico, aluminum and steel, which uh, of which they uh, export some to the U.S., it's it's a relatively small sector. It's a relatively small industry, uh, so uh, it didn't have uh, much of an impact on on the economy. On the contrary, uh, autos and parts are a big share of the uh, manufacturing sector and the overall economy in Mexico. So this is indeed a real uh, big risk for the Mexican economy. What's interesting, too, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm looking at some uh, Bloomberg story uh, from a few months ago, but it just talked about for Mexico, they spend, it's about $300 billion plus that the nation sends north each year, right? So that when you talked about uh, the aluminum tariffs or steel, it was about $3 billion in exports. That's why you're saying it was just a, a small amount. But when you talk cars, it's a lot. It's yeah, a bigger, you- bigger deal. When you talk about cars, exports last year were close to and, and both automobiles and, and parts, which mm-hmm. they export as well, uh, were total $100 billion, of which close to 80% of those went to the U.S. So that's what we're talking about. This accounts for roughly 25% of their total exports, uh, close to 4% of Mexican GDP, and uh, about 20 or 21% of total manufacturing production in Mexico. Also uh, employs about 1 million people in right. Mexico. And uh, at least last year, uh, the, those, that industry attracted about 25% of FDI or foreign direct investment into Mexico, roughly $7 billion. So anyway, any sector, anything that you right. would look at in the Mexican economy, it's highly uh, tied to all of this. Jonathan, when you look at what impact it might have, let's say, on U.S. consumers, and take me along you know, the income spectrum. I'm assuming for people who can afford a, a more expensive vehicles, they might get angry about it, but they can still afford it. But if you're looking at lower end uh, costs of vehicles, that's going to impact some Americans to the point where they might not be able to buy a car if indeed these tariffs go through. Yes, it's it's actually pretty interesting because when you, when you look at that total stat that I shared, that 47% of the vehicles sold in the United States are imported, uh, what actually comprises that 47% is not evenly distributed across the different vehicle segments. In fact, the three segments uh, that are heavily uh, import-dependent are uh, compact cars, uh, which are the most affordable, uh, crossover vehicles, which are the most popular, and then luxury. Um, so indeed, you can, you can make the claim that the luxury segment might be the most buffered uh, from having uh, issues uh, first because the consumers are not 
uh, in the luxury segment are, are not uh, as affordability-oriented affordability or constrained. Right. And likewise, more than half of the luxury vehicles are leased, um, so the impact uh, from higher prices wouldn't, wouldn't be felt as much uh, in the individual payments as you would see uh, in the more affordable segments. Um, another way to look at it, the top 10 vehicles um, sold in the United States, only one is exclusively uh, made in the United States, and wow. that's the Ford F-Series pickup. Right. Me- Mexico, indeed, is our most important uh, partner. Uh, it is the single largest country outside of the U.S. Uh, for the vehicles that are purchased today. Yeah, it's really kind of wild. Um, Felipe just got about 20 seconds here. I mean, how quickly um, would would Mexico figure out a different way to do their supply chain? I mean, none of this happens really quickly, does it? Well, it, it's really not up to Mexico. It's more up to the, the, manufacturers. Uh, the manufacturing companies, and many of which are actually American companies. So that is going to be really interesting to see. Or whether or not they provide more incentives to keep them there. To make up for, I don't know, I don't know what they do. Yeah, well, in the end, uh, uh, the specific impact will depend on the specific details and if tariffs are indeed implemented. So we're going to have to wait uh, for that. The devil is in the details, as they always say. Felipe Hernandez, thank you. Latin America economist with Bloomberg Economics. Jonathan Smoke, our thanks to you as well. Chief economist at Cox Automotive on the phone from Atlanta. So when looking at whether or not the markets are going to go up or down and just looking at investment outlooks, we always find it great to talk to those managing university endowments around the country. And that includes Carl Shear. He's chief investment officer at University of Cincinnati. He's joining us today on the phone from Cincinnati, along with our Janet Lauren endowments reporter at Bloomberg News. Janet, next to me in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Janet, great to have you here. Carl, great to have you here. Um, You know, Carl, I feel like investors have so gotten used to tons of headlines, you know, differing points of views coming out of the White House. Um, Anything as of late, like I just talked with our last guest about the sell-off at commodities, is there anything that's happened in the last few weeks that are showing an investment opportunity to you? Definitely so. One of the things I think that's interesting that's going on is that there's a number of different precursors to inflation that are kind of lining up. And uh, the president's criticism, open criticism of uh, Chairman Powell, could could hamper their ability to put a put a damper on inflation later. So, so some of the precursors include, for example, tariffs can raise raise prices in the U.S. Uh, con- on consumer goods. Oil prices are nice and strong, notwithstanding the fact that uh, some of the other uh, uh, commodities are down recently. Oil prices are very strong, and often commodities can be a source of. Uh, uh, of unexpected inflation, but the labor market is actually a really unusual. It's so tight now. Uh, depending on your measure, it's the tightest it's been in decades, and that could be a huge um, unforeseen source of of inflation. And if the the president has a chosen a, a Fed chairman who's not probably going to be the most independent to start with, and then begins to criticize him, the Fed may not have the tools or or, or the willingness to use the tools to fight inflation. So you could see it pick up in a way that we haven't in decades, in a long time. So how, what kind of impact does that have on endowments and your outlook for investing and also for your payout? Well, it's interesting you ask that. So to some degree, in, inflation is endowment boogeyman, right? So, so different, uh, different types of investors may have uh, different things that they're terrified of. For permanent pools of capital, endowment can be impre- incredibly painful. Uh, there was a period during in the 70s where we didn't have nearly as many tools for investing back then as we do now, uh, but 
stocks and bonds lost uh, on a real basis, that is, after inflation, lost something like 50% of their value over the, over the decade. Today, and that's part of the reason why endowments are such enthusiastic uh, users of alternative assets, because there are some there are a wide variety of alternative assets that are well insulated from inflation and don't depend on stock or bond markets for their returns. Uh, for our strategy, we've been investing in uh, producers of, of of oil commodities mainly, uh, real estate commodities. Excuse me, real, real estate managers, and some other things that we think will be uh, will be independent of what goes on in in stock and bond markets, and uh, so those are some of the I guess headline ways we're trying to avoid but it's, uh, but, but the it's, impacts. It's fascinating what what you say about this whole idea that if inflation does heat up, and everybody keeps saying that ultimately it will happen, that this will be a, a normal cycle, and that we're already in a tightening cycle. If the Fed has to be more aggressive about it. There could be some significant implications, certainly investment implications and certainly economic implications, and maybe investors are not prepared for that at all. Well, we haven't seen labor-driven, labor market-driven inflation in four decades. And the problem for us today with labor market-driven inflation is that it would change the the profit margins in our companies. That's Mm -hmm. been the maybe one of the best pieces of news over the past decade. Uh, is that profit margins have been strong, strengthening, and stayed you know very high. If that changes, all of a sudden, uh, equity markets look very, very overvalued. Talk a little bit about the portfolio companies uh, in your, say, private equity um, funds. How often do you see what's going on in those? And there, you know, there could be dozens to monitor in some of some of the funds. Right. We don't spend that much time at our portfolio companies. We do visit them regularly, but uh, we don't, that's not uh, our job. We hire managers to do that. But we do spend a fair amount of time with our managers understanding what drives their decision-making. And uh, today we were just talking with a manager that has a testing service that they've created that they can find the nutritional value and so forth of foods in order to figure out which foods, uh, food companies are producing the highest quality uh, products. And so, for example, they took 52 baby food products, sent them through testing to figure out what the pollutants were and what the, um, say, antioxidants and other nutritional values were. And that way they were able to go to, a, to the owner of the one that came out, you know, far and away above the rest of the baby food suppliers and say, hey, you've got a special product here. We'd like to invest with you. And then once they invested, they can take them to supermarkets and say, hey, you, this thing is much better than, than the other products out there. So when you hear and, that, oh, go ahead. No, just that, that was that's the main, that's the key key takeaways. So when you hear that kind of information, they're trying to gather data of how to how to buy uh, portfolio companies. Does that make you what do you what do you think about investing in the next fund? Uh, that gets us, you know, that that sort of strategy is independent. People are still going to buy baby food for their babies, even if we have high inflation, even if we have um, a trade war, and so those sorts of uh, you know companies are very uh, durable, very reliable, recession proof. Uh, it's a great way of buying in to a to a small company that has tremendous growth potential uh, for an endowment like ours that can wait until those th- the, the, that potential is realized. So, so that could be a company that we would need to own for five or ten or maybe fifteen years before you'd be able to realize the whole potential. But of course, we can own it for for that long easily or even longer because of our permanent horizon. So that sounds like the opposite of searching for unicorns. <laughs> That's absolutely right. We don't look a lot for unicorns at University of Cincinnati. What we look for is people who have been able to routinize upgrades. Another quick example is uh, we had a we, we've uh, just recently invested with a group in Tennessee, a real estate group that buys 
old beat-up apartment buildings, and they've uh, created a, a process for upgrading those apartment buildings that's incredibly efficient. So they have granite countertops drop shipped from China directly to the house. They have eight people uh, at the building that cut granite all day, and so they can upgrade the whole building all at once, which is very beneficial for renting out new rooms. And then they, they're really smart about targeting the things that millennials search for on apartment websites so that they have a, a part, apartment buildings that hit that profile really well. They're just very crafty about efficiently upgrading these old beat-up buildings to be things that are uh, in great demand among renters. You know, it's interesting when you say about a company and ha- planning that it could be 5, 10, 15 years. How do you know? How do you make that decision, especially when it's a company maybe with a new idea? Just got about uh, 40 seconds left. Well, we don't make the decision of when to sell. But what we do, do, what we do is, is uh, evaluate our managers' decision, decisions okay. of when to sell. And importantly, they, uh, they need to balance. It's, there's an art to it because they need to balance the desire to ride winners, to, to, invest, to remain invested with really successful companies that have a long runway of success ahead of them. On the other hand, they also need to um, you know, take risk off the table, that is, sell when the uh, opportunities are available. And our managers are pretty smart about doing that. They've been, most of them have been doing it a long time. Well, always fun to check in with you. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, Carol. Much appreciated. Carl Shear, Chief Investment Officer at the University of Cincinnati, on the phone from Cincinnati, along with our Janet Lauren, endowments reporter at Bloomberg News. I love talking to these guys, Janet. Right? They've got a long perspective. Yep. Well, keep them coming. <laughs> okay, good stuff. Janet joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets on this Thursday afternoon. Right now, we've got the Dow off 111 points, S&P a decline of nine, NASDAQ just down about 25. You are listening to Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 11 minutes to go until today's closing bell. Ah, make it 10 minutes to until today's close. Let's get to the drive to the close. Alan Lance back with us, director of research at LanceGlobal.com, president of Alan B. Lance and Associates with us uh, on the phone from Toledo, Ohio. Alan, great to have you back with us. Thank uh, you, Carol. Hey, I was really drawn to, especially on today, when you had Comcast saying they're backing out of their pursuit of 21st Century Fox uh, entertainment assets, letting Disney basically have it. You say that there's been some individual opportunities in buying some names, in particular Comcast. Let's talk about that one. What have you seen? Well, I, I just think it's, it's a situation where um, everybody was expecting a higher bid and, and this to continue, and it gets to a point where the, the stock gets so cheap, and if you look at the underlying assets, um, the risk-to-reward just becomes very favorable. And even though the market might be touching on new highs, uh, you're getting these pockets of opportunity uh, that that we really like. So I think, you know, last last month when Comcast went down, 30, 31, 32 area, uh, we started accumulating it. And, and you know, uh, I think now backing out of this 21st Century Fox deal, uh, they're still going to pick up some good assets with Sky. So I, I, I think it's going to be great for long term. And you're able to 
pick this stock up, you know, at, at new lows while you've got, you know, these tech stocks hitting new highs. It reminds me a lot of the last uh, longest bull market, which was from 1990 to 2000 when mm-hmm. uh, the dot-coms are going crazy and Johnson & Johnson was hitting new lows. Right. So you've really got to look into individual names, which is, you know, we say this all the time, but you really got to do it. Comcast is down, yeah, about 13% this year. So you've been buying into Comcast. Another, I think, opportunity that you say is, is maybe a little bit similar is what we're seeing with AT&T right now uh, as we've got the delays with its uh, melding, merging, merger with uh, Time Warner. Exactly. Actually, that's, that one's more current because yeah. that one's hitting new lows, you know, as we speak. And uh, the yield 6.4 is the highest since the, yeah. two, the depths of 2009. Uh, oh. Probably will go lower. So just uh, it's just like comms get cast last month, you know, uh, buy and then anticipate buying uh, a little bit lower and getting even a higher dividend. But but I like the, these type of companies where uh, uh, the Time Warner, either way, gets settled. Uh, I think you'll get a pop in a stock just like when uh, the 21st century got settled finally here today with Comcast, you saw a pop in the stock. So so it, it, it's a good risk to reward, and, and while you're waiting, you're getting a great dividend. And I think those kind of you know, select opportunities are really where to make a difference in this market. You know, we talked earlier uh, with one of our Bloomberg uh, team members, uh, managing editor of commodities uh, at Bloomberg News, about the commodity complex. And we've seen a pullback there. Have you found some opportunities in playing that somehow, whether it's some of the equity names, whether it's some of the equipment manufacturers and so on? Well, it's funny you ask that because we are starting to look at the commodities. I mean, they, they've been getting uh, hit, you know, quite mm-hmm. a bit. We haven't pulled the trigger. Also, uh, the, the tariff concerns here—they're going to be winners and losers. So, so that will probably be our next uh, uh, major activity. Where, where you know, a lot of uh, the tariff, um, uh, as, as far as talk, has, has brought down everything. And when, in actuality, if if we got tougher with with the tariffs, uh, some companies will benefit, even though they've gone down. So I think that's going to create some opportunities. So you're right. I think commodities uh, later this summer are going to be uh, very attractive from a risk reward uh, selectively. And then uh, with this this tariff situation, I think it's going to uh, present some uh, outside uh, activity and. and and uh, opportunities uh, similar to the M&A with what we saw with Comcast and, and uh, AT&T. Hey, listen, take me back to May, right? Early May. Is that you guys put out, I think, a note or that you, you started accumulating shares of Twitter. Is that correct? Actually, uh, a year ago, we recommended oh, Twitter. That's a year uh, ago. And, Forgive me. Yeah, and, and uh, basically in Barron's, we were interviewed, and and uh, we, we picked a barbell approach of uh, Occidental and, and, and some energies that were hitting new lows last summer, and then uh, just uh, a eclectic list of uh, uh, more speculative companies in Twitter, Crocs, and uh, Fitbit uh, were all hitting new lows that we really uh, thought were, were attractive. Um Twitter has gained uh, a lot of notoriety, just like uh, Crocs and a little bit of, of, of Fitbit has uh, yeah. moved up as well. And we wouldn't buy any of those now. And actually, um, you know, I, I think long term, uh, they're fine companies. But, uh, you know, the the uh, opportunity has uh, passed us on, on all those uh, yeah. uh, one year later. Twitter's up about 134% since that May point in 2017. Let me just uh, bring to our listeners, we have a headline crossing the Bloomberg. President Trump invited Russian President Vladimir Putin to Washington later this year, according to uh, White House spokesperson Sarah Sanders. So that's just crossing uh, the Bloomberg terminal. Hey, Alan, how do you look at 
some of the news that's coming out of this administration and this president specifically. What a week. Uh, And certainly I think it's safe to say that most people will agree, whatever your political beliefs are, that that press conference between President Trump and President Putin was rather startling. Yeah, yeah, it definitely was uh, disappointing. It, it really shows how resilient, you know, the market is. But, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, that that is just um, headline, you know, chatter many times with, with the tweets and, and, you know, situations like this. Uh, it's brought back volatility in the market, you know, obviously this year uh, with the January sell-off. And, you know, we might be what, – mm-hmm. what we're seeing here is a little bit tech sell-off. And I think that's healthy for the market. I mean, some of these, you know, the Teslas and the Netflixes of the world are, are, are advanced. Thing, you know, too far, too fast. When you got other, you know, quality companies hitting new lows, so so bring that divergence brings out opportunities. But uh, I, I think a lot of the uh, political situation is is going to be yeah. uh, more headline that, that you can take advantage of if you're a smart investor. Yeah, interesting times. Hey, great to talk some names with you, Alan Lance, director of research at LanceGlobal.com, president of Allen B. Lance and Associates. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.